Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Rams, Vikes, tonight from Los Angeles. Now, on the one hand, I'll say this. It does feel a little bit different now than it did five days ago. A little different before Josh Allen and the Bills rolled into Minnesota and straight snatched souls. And now the Vikings have to somehow shake off the most stunning ass-kicking of early 2018, the season. Yeah, I don't think they like that. They got to shake off a beatdown and an ass-kicking and then jump a bird to LAX and beat the most complete team of 2018 thus far. And they've got to do it on a short week. Can Minnesota do that? Depends who you ask. If you were to ask my podcast co-host and two-time Super Bowl champ Trevor Price, he would tell you that it's pretty much impossible. The Vikings that are going to L.A. are going to get their heads kicked in. They're a wounded animal. The L.A. Rams, right now, the way their offense playing, they can kill wounded animals. If this was Sunday or Monday night, there would be some time to get together. But that quick turnaround and flying from Minneapolis to L.A. to go play that offense after you just got beat up the way you did, I think the Vikings are in a lot of trouble right now. That's Trevor Price. That is my fellow talking head on the RPO podcast. He won two Super Bowls. He played 14 years in the NFL. He thinks the Vikings are in really big trouble. My man is typically right. But that doesn't mean that it's not a damn good matchup still because it is. Even after Buffalo curb stomped the Vikes, even with the Rams busted up in the secondary, it's still the Vikings and the Rams in the Coliseum. Aaron Donald, Indomitian Sue, Todd Gurley, Kirk Cousins, Stephon Diggs, Harrison Smith. Still a possible NFC title game preview with nearly a half a bill in contracts on the field. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to be the greatest game ever, what Thursday game is, but it's not your average Thursday night affair. You've got Sean McVay v. Mike Zimmer, Jared Goff v. Kirk Cousins, an explosive offense versus a nasty defense. The Rams' dream team versus the Vikings team that came this close to hosting a Super Bowl last season. And you know they want nothing more than to square this thing up, get it right, and get their season back on track. But then you do have the Rams, and the Rams did come into the season with a ton of hype. The reigning offensive player of the year, the reigning defensive player of the year, the reigning coach of the year. And then they add Sue, Brandon Cooks, a pair of Pro Bowl corners. The hype meter broke with all that. And so far, the Rams are living up to it. They're 3-0. and They're putting up 33 or more in every single game. And with the injury to Jimmy G and Frisco, the division is pretty much already in the bag for the Rams. Then you've got the Vikings. And they do coming into or into tonight's game licking their wounds. That was a humiliating beatdown from Buffalo. Now, three games is not a hell of a lot for a sample size, but this Vikings offense still is not quite clicked. It is a short week. And did I say they just got their asses kicked by Buffalo? And they're dealing with the situation involving Everson Griffin. Oh, and they just got hammered by Buffalo, and they're flying halfway across the country, something they're not happy about. And they just lost by three touchdowns to Buffalo at home. So it would seem pretty logical that they're going to show up here in L.A. and get punched in the face again, right? I mean, if Josh Allen torched the Vikings, what do you think Jared Goff is going to do? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Kind of goes back to what Trevor Price said them being a wounded animal. It kind of depends on your view of a wounded animal. Is a wounded animal dangerous or is a wounded animal not dangerous at all because it's wounded? 
I know this. The Vikes need this game badly. 1-1-1 one, one, and one is not how they expected to start the season. 1-2-1 and one is worse, much worse, especially if it means they fall even further behind the Bears in the NFC North. And again, the Rams, their secondary is banged up. Aqib Tlaib, out. Marcus Peters, probably out. They're down both starting cornerbacks, and they're going up against one of the best receiver tandems in Adam Thielen and Stephon Diggs. There's never a good time to be down a pair of Pro Bowl corners, but especially going up against those two. And then on top of that, as good as the Rams' defensive line is on paper, the results have not quite shown up on a stat sheet. Three games in, Donald, Sue, Michael Brockers have combined for all of two sacks. So tonight would be a really good time to pick up a few more, especially against a Vikings offensive line that's got some question marks. So where do I come out? I've given you both sides of this. Where do I come out? I'm going to trust at son of bum to scheme it up defensively. Sean McVay to dial it up offensively. Says right here, Rams 31, Vikings 24. Rams by a touch. If you're on the East Coast, coast, nap it out tonight. Because then you can stay up and even with a busted up secondary, watch the Rams. Because the Rams are must-see TV and you don't want to miss this. Rams by seven and then they'll be rump bumping ram it all night long in this city. Notre Dame head coach Brian Kelly is my guest. Brian, nice to have you back. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on. Always good to have you. All right, so you're coming off a 56-27 to win at Wake Forest where the offense put up a season high in points and yardage. What did you make of what you saw from the offense after you made the switch of quarterback from Brandon Wimbush to Ian Book? Uh, efficiency, um, distribution uh, to a number of different uh, you know, receivers and running backs, um, and, and what we needed. Uh, we were still evolving offensively and and to you know obviously from from Brandon Wimbush's perspective um he went in there beat Michigan uh and but he had a lot of young players around him um and so a lot of that had to do with the you know evolution of the offense but we felt like Ian was was a guy that really could uh elevate it and he did a great job now, Brian, can I ask you, and I appreciate your thoughts on that too, can I ask you, you've been coaching for 28 seasons. Have yep. you ever been in a situation where you had an undefeated team and you made a change of quarterback that was not due to an injury? No, that was the first time I've ever done that. Um, so, you know, you're, you're still evaluating your team and, and trying to figure out what's the best way to, you know, continue to improve as the season kind of moves on. And, yeah, I mean, Brandon was 13-3 and as a starter, you know, 3-0, and and, you know, you beat a really good Michigan team. You know, I, I think in some instances that's, uh, that's, that's not a, an easy thing for a coach to do, but I knew it was, you know, for, for our betterment as a football team. Brian Kelly joining us. You know, by all accounts, Wimbush is a good leader, and he's somebody who has poured a lot into improving as a player. And as yep. you pointed out, you don't beat Michigan without him. He carried the offense in that game. So what was it like to have to tell him that decision? And then how do you think he's responded since then? It was one of the hardest things I've done as a coach because I love him to death. He's like a son in terms of, you know, the the emotional attachment that you have to somebody that is always trying to get better at everything he does. He represents our program um, in such a positive way, both um, in the in the locker room and, and around this community. So it was it was really difficult. Um, 
he's been really good. I, I, I think at first it's, you know, like anybody's reaction, it's, there's a bit of a shock that, that goes through you. Uh, but this week in practice, he was outstanding. He was vocal. Uh, he was preparing in, in a sense that he was the starter. And that takes such maturity uh, at, uh, you know, 19, 20 years old to be able to do that. I was very proud of him. Notre Dame head football coach Brian Kelly, my guest. And then a final thought. For instance, if Book went out and he had a tough Saturday, the decision might not look so great. But instead, he threw for more than 300 yards and accounted for five touchdowns on his own. The rushing offense found a new level. So what's it mean for the team going forward? Is Book the guy the rest of the way? Well, he, he's he's going to obviously be the guy that, that we look to um, this weekend. But, you know, we reserve the right to, to, to have Brandon go in there because he can he can win. He's 13-3. and three. So, you know, why – you know why not have him ready to come in if we think he can help us win a game um and and that's kind of what i've i've told our football team they're prepared to play with either one of the quarterbacks and that's really all that matters jim is that our team is ready and prepared you know there's no division in the locker room there's not one side versus the other they know both these guys can help us win and we're prepared to play them both if if we think that that's what needs to be done we're talking to notre dame head coach brian kelly notre dame and stanford coming up this weekend you know brian the thinking had been that jafar armstrong had been recruited to notre dame as a wide receiver but then Mm -hmm. he was moved to running back so what did you see in him that made you feel like he might have success in the backfield and and how do you think he's handled that transition? You know, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, we we kind of saw it early on. He was an early enrollee. And we saw it in the weight room, actually, Jim, in mm. terms of his his physicality, his ability to sustain a, a load of effort uh, in January and February. He was a you know, phenomenal in terms of his strength and um, the way he worked out. And we saw a mental and physical toughness that could really translate uh, into another position. Uh, As you know, he caught the ball coming out of the backfield exceedingly well for us um, these last four weeks as well. So we saw a bit of a hybrid, if you will, Uh, somebody that could learn how to run the football, but was very, very talented. But he he showed us that toughness in our off-season conditioning and weight training that gave us an inclination that this guy could fit in as a running back. If you're looking for things to do tonight, go to my bookie. You can get down on Thursday Night Football, bet the Ryder Cup. You can place just about any bet you want on my bookie. Remember this, who you're betting on is just as important as who you're betting with. This is why I tell my people to bet with my bookie. Trust me, they are the best bet this season. They've been in business for years. They have great reviews online, and their mobile site is very easy to navigate. Lay down some cash, win big right now. I would only recommend a service to my listeners that's been good to me. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay, and they have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business, and for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome to activate that offer. Visit MyBookie online today. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account to get that bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. Now, they're all big. They're all huge, but I'm always fascinated by this matchup, Notre Dame and Stanford. You've got them on Saturday night. So this season, when you look at the Cardinal, what sticks out to you the most? Versatility on the offensive side of the ball. If you don't stop Bryce Love, 
um, you have no chance to win. So um, everybody is, is, you know, going to put that extra player um, to stop the run. And then that opens up one-on-one matchups for, you know, Arcega-Whiteside, Parkinson. I mean, they have big athletic wide receivers. And and I think the difference is Costello's able to get them the football in some favorable one-on-one matchups. So, you know, David Shaw does a great job of, you know, playing chess during the game. If you want to take Bryce Love out of the game by adding an extra defender, he's going to find the one-on-one matchups, and they're doing a really good job of that. You know, it seems to me also the the rivalry is so underrated, but it's so great because the programs are both great, but then the institutions are really so interesting and stellar. Like, for instance, because of the academic standards and the football success at both schools, there's always going to be comparisons made between the programs. So what do you see as some of the similarities and maybe some of the differences between Notre Dame and Stanford? Well, you know, obviously from a football standpoint, you know, Stanford has really had a great run here over the last 10 years. You know, ours has been over the last 90 years. So, you know, there's a difference in terms of longevity and national championships. Um, I think from an academic standpoint, certainly, you know, being a Catholic institution, um, you know, we're a little bit different there, but we're both looking for excellence, both in the classroom and on the football field. And that's, I think, the ties that bind here with both institutions. And and so, you know, we're recruiting similar players. Um, If you've probably visited Stanford, you're probably going to visit Notre Dame as well. And so I think that that's where, you know, a lot of the rivalry comes from. Brian Kelly, my guest. One last thought, Brian. There's been so much talk this week about the new redshirt rule in college football, which of course allows players to participate in up to four games without losing a year of eligibility. What do you make of that rule? I think it's a great rule. Uh, I think it gives the athlete now that um, you know has an opportunity to go in and, and compete. It really helps them, you know, with their mental game in terms of uh, how they handle themselves in the classroom and um, their their preparation and attention to detail and all the things that they need as uh, as they enter into college. And and then it helps out a young man like Kelly Bryant who you know now is in his fourth season, you know, and he's not going to be the starter. Uh, now he's got an opportunity to go uh, next year and, and, and be be a starter somewhere. So, yeah, it's, it's difficult for Dabo because it, it, it puts him shorthanded uh, for this season. But he's got his starter, uh, and now Kelly can go and, and be a starter somewhere else. So I, I, think, I think it's a great rule. It helps the student-athlete, and um, it, it benefits everybody uh, you know, from a program standpoint, too. He is a two-time national coach of the year, and a big one coming up. Notre Dame is 4-0. They're number eight in both polls, and they are hosting Stanford on Saturday night. Head coach Brian Kelly, our guest. Brian, so good to have you back. I always appreciate the visit. Thank you very much. Good luck this weekend. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me on the show. All right, so the Nationals beat the Miami Marlins 9-3 last night. Now, that was a game that was supposed to have mattered at the start of the year, and for all, I mean, for all the right reasons. Now it matters for all the wrong reasons. The fact that it even mattered at all, though, was kind of weird. In fact, everything about that game was kind of weird. The fact that it was rain-shortened, the fact that the win clinched a season of at least 500 for the Nationals, a team that thought they had a shot at winning it all, and most of all, the fact that it was potentially Bryce Harper's last game in D.C. as a National. Harper, of course, is a free agent after this season, and if you think that fact was lost on him, it wasn't because he was dressed three and a half hours before that game in his full uniform, including stirrups, just to soak in that moment. Yeah, I knew I wanted to get here and put the uni on. Uh, 
right away and uh, you know just cherish that moment if that's if it's going to be the last time or not. You know I can't really stand here and say it's going to be a farewell or anything like that because nobody knows and nobody under you know nobody knows what uh, what's what this offseason holds or anything like that. And the fans knew that it might be his last appearance as well because when he came to bat for the first time, the Nats fans gave him a standing ovation. The right fielder, number 34, Bryce Harper! So that's a nice moment. A nice moment, and it could have been the start of a really nice, potentially final game for Harper, except it wasn't. He went 0 for 4. Had a couple of strikeouts, and the plan was to take him out of the game in the top of the ninth so that the home crowd could give him one more standing ovation, but even that got ruined by the rain. And then on top of that, the entire night was overshadowed by Nats rookie Victor Robles, who went four for five with a double, a bomb, and five runs batted in. The same Victor Robles who will likely replace Harper in the outfield next year if Harper is not with that team. So really, that couldn't have gone any worse. That was extremely awkward. Awkward. It was really awkward. awkward. So if that was Bryce Harper's last game in D.C., that W on his jersey that he put on three and a half hours before that game does not stand for Washington. It just stands for weird. Because it's somehow fitting that it ended in such a weird way. Because when you get down to it, his time there was pretty weird. Let's get weird. Called up to the majors at 19. NL Rookie of the Year in 2012. Unanimous MVP in 2015. You start your career in D.C. like that, and you end up a legend. Or at least you should be. And really, you can't say in his defense that Bryce Harper didn't make a difference. He did. They were putting up triple-digit loss seasons before he arrived there. And then they won four NL East titles with him. They won a lot, but still not nearly enough. They just didn't. They didn't win enough, even with Harper and Max Scherzer, two of the best in the game, two of the best that ever put on that uniform, and they still never won a single playoff series. Forget about the ring. They never won a single series. Now, I'm not saying that's on Harper. And if you want to blame him for all that, you're wrong. Because baseball is not basketball. One guy can't carry a team to a title. If that were the case, Mike Trout would have a fistful of jewelry. But it does still feel weird. It feels weird to think that Bryce Harper might be leaving the Nationals. And maybe his single greatest moment as a National was the home run derby this year. And that's weird. That's really odd. One of the best in the game. And his best moment didn't even come in a game. But still, it's a down year for him, and he's still the only guy in the National League with 100 runs, 100 RBI, and 100 walks. And amazingly, he's still only 25. And he might be in pinstripes next year. Sort of weird. But then again, the whole thing is weird. And normally weird is good, but in this case, it's just weird. About as weird as a rain-shortened last game in D.C. where your possible replacement Rip the spotlight, and you took the caller. This is not how this was supposed to end for this guy, but apparently it will. Harper, as I mentioned, I read you the numbers. He's only 25. He'll probably make 400 mil. He's probably going to be just fine. But how about you, Nats fan? How you living? 
because this guy's going to walk probably. And what do you have to show for it? A bunch of meaningless wins, empty wins, and not a single series victory in the postseason. And now he's gone, probably in his prime to get paid and win somewhere else. So how you all live in Nats fan? That was weird. I got to be fair. I got to be fair. I think probably it's unfair for me to say, given this guy and who he is, the numbers he's put up, it's probably unfair for me to say Bryce Harper's finest moment was in home run derby. That's probably not fair. That might be a little bit harsh. All right. See, that's the kind of guy I am. I can step back and own something. To be fair, Bryce Harper's finest moment may have been when John Papelbon wrapped up on his throat. And Bryce Harper will hit it in the air to left. Jeff Francoeur, after switching over, makes that catch. There is something going on in the dugout. See Papelbon saying, run the ball out. Huge drowning pool. And Bryce saying, you got to be kidding me. And then Papelbon went right after Harper. It's getting ugly, folks. There's no other way to put it. I mean, you can read his lips. He told him, you got to run that ball out. And Bryce Harper said, are you kidding me? That's not good. Unbelievable. Oh, no, that's good, all right. That stuff happens throughout the course of the season, but not the dugout. It doesn't evidently nose to nose with Jonathan Papelbon quote. That's not good. Oh, correction. That was amazing. That type of thing happens. Oh no, it doesn't. Not in the dugout, not in front of the cameras and not with the stopper and the franchise superstar. It doesn't No. Yes. Sometimes an opponent check that sometimes a teammate will come up on somebody and say, come on, man, you got to run that out. Come on, man, what's that all about? But normally, it doesn't happen with a franchise player with a guy's hand around his throat in the middle of the game on the dugout in front of cameras. So, no, that does not happen. That was a truly amazing moment. No, that has to be his best moment there. Well, maybe not best. Most memorable moment there. Lincoln Riley is my guest. Lincoln, great to have you back. How are you? Hey, I'm great, Jim. How you doing? Good, good, Lincoln. Great to talk to you. You beat Army 28-21 in overtime on Saturday. Let me start right there. Now, look, you knew that was going to be a tough game, but it turned out to be closer than a lot of people expected. What did your guys show you in the way they dealt with the adversity and they found a way to grind that thing out? Yeah, and no, I'm really proud of our team. You know, Army's a, a tough uh, a tough out. You know, kids play hard. They play really well. The triple option is such a hard thing to defend. And, uh, yeah, the game, I was really proud because the game honestly went exactly like Army would have scripted it. You know, we only had 40 offensive plays. They had 87. Uh, they controlled the time on the clock, made it a low-possession game where anything could happen. And I think a lot of things didn't go our way, but our guys found a way to fight, found a way to play their best uh, their best ball at the end of regulation and in overtime to, to seal up the win. And to be a championship team, you got to win some of those tough ones. So I was really proud of our resiliency. Lincoln Riley joins us. Kyler Murray threw for three TDs. He ran for another. So I would imagine you're pretty happy with the way he's playing right now. How would you assess his first four games as a starter? He's definitely played well. You know, I think he's shown that he's he's been ready for the moment. Uh, he's done a great job of just of just being himself. You know, not listening to all the noise on the outside. Just just continuing to improve, uh, and and really done a great job commanding our group. Uh, he's he's been patient. He's really got all of our playmakers involved. Um, and, he, and the fun thing for him is he's playing well, but he can still continue to improve and play so much better. So uh, excited for him, his progress, and, and what this next part of the season holds for him. So, Lincoln, what about that? I mean, what would the next level look like for Murray, and where are you looking to see him improve next? 
Yeah, I think he can just be, you know, continue to be more efficient in situations, continue. There's been, you know, each game there's been one or two decisions that we'd love to have back that, uh, you know, that are going to be important going forward. And and he's going to continue to face new challenges just like we did last week against Army. So, uh, but I, yeah, he's he's handled it well, no question. Uh, the stats I know have been really good, but, you know, within kind of our walls and what we see, he can continue to grow and play better. Sooners head coach Lincoln Riley, my guest. Your kicker, Austin Siebert, had a tough moment when he missed a potential game-winning field goal at the end of regulation. Again, we're talking about a guy who's a Ray guy and a Lou Groza candidate, but after the game, he tweeted that he felt like he let his teammates and his coaches and the fans down. What was your message to him in the aftermath? Well, I, I, I mean, I appreciate him saying that. He didn't need to. Um, he's bailed us out way more than he's ever let us down. I mean, to to start as a, a punter, a kicker, and a kickoff guy for four years at a place like Oklahoma is so rare, and he's done it at a high level his entire career. So we'll have more big, important kicks this year, and uh, and he'll be ready to put those right through the middle like he's done the majority of his career. So it happens, and the team was ready to rally around him, and there'll be a lot of other points where we're going to need him, and he'll be ready to go. And then you have Kenneth Murray, who had some kind of day for himself 28 tackles he broke the school record what'd you make of his performance yeah he was he was awesome you know him and our other inside backer Curtis Bolton who had 23 tackles uh, they were just they were outstanding I mean they fought all night it was a very physical game I thought the defensive line did a nice job of keeping keeping those guys free and that was our game plan you know to to funnel the ball to those guys and let them make plays and they you know those guys have continued to improve and I think are you know one of the better inside linebacker tandems in the country right now you know one more thing about Murray I mean you know this guy's gonna fly you know he's gonna make plays what he's a sophomore though and already a team captain so what's that say about him as a person and a leader very rare at a place like Oklahoma. Right. I mean, that just doesn't happen often. So yeah, it shows, I think, our team's confidence in him, you know, not only where he's at right now, but, you know, the way they can see him improve. And, and I think part of it's from, you know, what he did last year, you know, playing Mike Linebacker, a new position for him as a, as a true freshman, you know. And so uh, he's got a lot of room to grow, a lot of room to improve, but he's a very talented leader that's, you know, kind of starting to come into his own right now. We're talking Oklahoma football. Lincoln Riley, my guest. So Baker Mayfield was back for your game last weekend. You know, you know him as well as anybody, Lincoln, of course. But what was going through your mind when you watched him against the Jets and saw what he was doing? You might not have been surprised necessarily, but what were you thinking as you saw that thing play out? Uh, yeah, I was I was excited for his opportunity, you know, and, and I was just proud of the way he carried himself. You know, he went in, I think it was a two-minute drill right before half, went in, you know, just went in firing away, you know, was not hesitant. He looked comfortable. He looked in control. Uh, made very few mistakes, and the ones that he did make, he was able to brush them off and, and get on to the next play. So, yeah, proud of proud of him. You know, he's, he's you know everybody's going to want to you know say you know he's the second coming now, and he's just going to have to continue to stay steady. There'll be a lot of great moments. There'll still be some tough moments, and he, as long as he continues to to keep his head down and grow like he did during his time here at Oklahoma, he's going to do he's going to do a fantastic job. God, he came out of that thing just business as usual. But the fact of the matter is, I think you have to really look at this. And before the draft, you told this to Robert Klemko of Sports Illustrated. Quote: He wins the job as a walk-on freshman at Texas Tech. He beats out a bunch of other good players at Oklahoma, and then he wins the job despite having no experience in the offense here and then he even jumps on the field against the Jets he wasn't getting reps with the uh, first string I mean Lincoln how do you explain that I understand this guy's sharp and he might even have photographic recall but how do you explain him absorbing all that info and just stepping in and doing things like that yeah, he's got a tremendous belief in himself which I think is just such a key quality it's hard to measure but uh, you know to play that position in that league uh, 
no doubt you gotta you gotta have the physical talent. You gotta mentally be able to handle it. But at the same time, you gotta have a strong belief in yourself and to to get those things done. And regardless of what situation comes up, that you're gonna be ready for it. So I would. I would honestly point to that more than anything. And he's had a history, like we, like you just said, he's had a history of, uh, of, of doing things just like that, going into situations where maybe, you know, he wasn't the guy in the beginning, or the odds were stacked against him, and the guy just finds a way. So he's been like that his entire career, and I, I just at the time didn't feel like that there would be any difference when he went to the NFL. Got a couple of more moments with Lincoln Riley. Now, one of the phrases around the program is OU DNA. How would you describe OU DNA? Yeah, we just think it's, you know, something extra special that you have to have that first off the, the all the players and coaches that have come before us here and you know, kind of built the the legacy legacy, uh, you know, the just the, the kind of the hallmark of this program has been consistent winning at a high level for years and years. And so uh it's one of the most uh most iconic programs ever. And so I think it takes a little extra something extra special to, to, to do this here. Um I think well, guys, once they kind of get in the program and they see all the tests of them, they understand that. But I think the results also speak for themselves. Hey, let me ask you this. Can you identify in a player when you're recruiting whether or not they have OU DNA, for instance? What's it look like on the high school level? We definitely try. You know, we definitely try to. It's never an exact science by any stretch. But, yeah, you're trying to find guys, I think, more than anything, that are winners. You know, guys that, that don't mind doing extra things. Guys that, at the end of the day, are going to put the team first and then understand if they do that, then the individual goals that they have and that we want them to have uh, will, will happen as well. So earlier this month, you celebrated your birthday, and you did it with a cake that had a Jordan 11 on top. Dude, this is an awesome cake. That was a good cake. cake, wasn't it? Oh, man, that was amazing. That was an amazing-looking cake. Did it taste as good as it looked? You know what? It tasted really good, too, but it was uh, almost almost felt a little guilty uh, cutting it up because, uh, yeah, that was pretty special, and the Jordan brand has been a great thing for us. Our players, our recruits have really loved it, and it's, it's kind of just another thing that helps set OU apart, so we've had a, we've had a lot of fun with that here in the early stages. Hey, Lincoln, did you run the blade through that thing as just kind of a, uh, you know, the thing you're supposed to do, or are you a cake guy? Um, yeah, I'm actually not a huge cake guy, but that one was so good I had to try it out. So yeah, it was it was it was on point. It's an amazing cake. I've never seen a cake quite like that. Oklahoma's four zero, number six in the AP poll, number five in the coaches poll. Next up, Baylor at home on Saturday. Lincoln, really nice to have you back. I appreciate you, and thanks for doing the show once again. Anytime, Jim. Anytime for you. Appreciate Great. it. Ohio State, Penn State, Saturday night, number four and number nine. Big game, huge game, prime time. Happy Valley will be rocking. And as you might expect, Penn State is making it a whiteout game. And that can be pretty intimidating. In fact, very intimidating. Crazy, hostile, loud environment. But Ohio State has a plan. They're rallying their fans. And they're starting it on Twitter with this tweet. Quote, silence the white noise. Hashtag, go Bucks. Hashtag, win the moment. And the graphic, if you've not seen this, is of a football player with his finger to his lips and the word SILENCE in all caps, in white, on a red background, above him. Let me just repeat that for you. Ohio State's message going into this game is, quote, SILENCE. My message is WTF. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong here, But your football program has just spent the last couple of months embroiled in a scandal that was all about silence. 
and silence is going to be the word that you want to use before this game. Maybe it's just me. But if I worked at a school that was dealing with a scandal involving silence, I probably would not be using that word to fire up my fan base. And if I worked at a school that was dealing with more than 100 allegations of sexual misconduct involving a school doctor and a lawsuit about a former coach of the school's diving club sexually abusing a former athlete and a federal investigation into the handling of abuse allegations, I definitely would not be splashing in the word silence on Twitter. But that's just me. Quick question. What's worse than tone deaf? That tweet. I don't know a word or a phrase that can actually sum this up. I mean, does Ohio State not know how that comes across? Or do they just not give a damn? No, really, I want to know. I ask because I really can't figure out what the answer is. I mean, do you really want to invite people to build a game between Ohio State and Penn State as the silence bowl? Did anybody proof that before it went out? Has anybody in the football department or the social media department of the football department picked up a school newspaper recently? You're just inviting an avalanche of memes, clips, and photoshops involving Urban Meyer. But as often happens in these situations, when somebody drops a truly regrettable tweet, there's a quick follow-up to that tweet. And there was here too. And that follow-up reads, and I quote, in case you needed that phone background too, with a sunglasses emoji. I mean, that's fantastic. They're so proud of their work They want to make sure that you can carry it around with you everywhere you go. You know what would be awesome? I'll tell you what would be great. If Urban Meyer had that phone background on that phone where they couldn't find text messages beyond the past year. Now that would be truly next level. That wouldn't even be 2.0. That would be 3.0. That would be the iOS 12 of moronic moves. The iOSU, if you will. Great work, everybody. Yeah, I know, I know. Urban says he had nothing to do with the missing text messages. I know. But just for old time's sake, here's what the investigators wrote about how Meyer reacted to the report that he knew about the 2015 incident and lied about it at the Big Ten Media Days. The investigators said, quote, Upon seeing this report when it first came out at about 10.17 a.m., Brian Voldolini, who was on the practice field with Coach Meyer, went to speak with him, commenting that this was, quote, a bad article, end quote. The two discussed at that time whether the media could get access to Coach Meyer's phone and specifically discussed how to adjust the settings on Meyer's phone so that text messages older than one year would be deleted, end quote. The investigators stated as much. But yes, by all means, definitely make a phone background with the word silence highlighted. Great idea. Take a bow. Give yourselves a nice round of applause. Listen, I don't want to talk about Ohio State scandals. I really don't. I've said everything that I have to say about it. But... They seem to want to make sure that everybody keeps on talking about it because they're the ones who keep bringing it up. 
because either they don't think it's a problem or they don't care that it's a problem, and either way, that makes it a huge problem. I don't want to talk about it anymore. They're the ones who keep bringing it up. 1-800-636-8686. Again, do they not know or they just don't give a damn? That's unbelievable, that tweet. And then to double down with it, too. Big game. It's going to be a whiteout. Win the moment with silence. Wow. Kalani Sataki. Kalani, it's so good to have you back. Good morning. How are you? It's good to be in the jungle. Thanks, Jim. It's good to have you in the jungle, Coach. You beat number 6 Wisconsin in their place earlier this month, and then you followed that up with a win against McNeese State this past Saturday. The game against McNeese State got off to kind of a slow start, but then you found your rhythm in the second quarter. My question is, how pleased were you with your guys once they got rolling and they seized control of that game before it became a real issue or even too late? Well, I thought McNeese came ready to play, and they started up fast, you know, and uh, we, we took a while to get going, but I think you have to give McNeese credit for what they did in the game. Um, our, our guys uh, didn't respond the right way to adversity, but uh, after a while we got used to it, and I was pleased with the, the outcome. I mean, if you would have told me before the game that we would win 30-3, to I would take it no matter how it came. And there's no such thing as an ugly win, but uh, we learned a lot about our team that week, and we uh, overcame uh, some adversity this like we do every week. And so we're looking forward to the next challenge, and, Really excited to go up to Seattle and, and, and share the field with the University of Washington. It's a huge challenge, which I'll get to in a minute. Kalani Sataki, my guest. You know, late in the fourth quarter against McNeese State, there was a fumble in their territory. You broke off a 20-yard run to get inside their 10. You could have easily tried to punch it in and make the scoreboard look even better, but you didn't do that. How come? Um, I, I didn't think that there was a need for us to get there and punch it in. I know that uh, it would be a cool experience for some of our players, but... Uh, I'm really big on showing sportsmanship in class and in in football, you know, and um, it's not worth it for us to sacrifice points um, just to get a, a touchdown. And, and I learned that from Lavelle Edwards. I, I As a player under him, we did the same thing, and so it's not anything unique to me. I just think that uh, that's just the best way to, to, to handle the game, and we play the game with sportsmanship in class and definitely respect our opponents. And I respect McNeese, and I just didn't think uh, we needed to throw that into the mix. You know, can I say it's not unique to you, but it was unique to Lance Gidry, who's the McNeese State head coach, and he really appreciated it. He tweeted, Kalani Sataki is a class act. Most coaches in today's coaching world would have scored that last touchdown. Coach is a man of character and class, and BYU is lucky to have him. Good luck next week, and God bless. You know, again, you learned this from Lavelle Edwards, and it might not seem unusual to you, but what did that mean to hear that from a fellow coach and a peer? Oh, it means the world, you know, and I, uh, life as a, as a coach, especially a head coach is, is not easy. And so, uh, uh, I just appreciate those type of words coming from Lance and there's a lot of great coaches out there that would have done the same thing. And so I, I think that, uh, uh, you know, I'm probably getting too much recognition for something that that most guys would have done anyway. I thought it was cool. Kalani Sataki joining us. I thought it was great. Now, one of the things that's been really interesting to watch this year has been the development of the offense and all the misdirection and pre-snap movement the new coordinator, Jeff Grimes, has brought with him. You know, personally, your coaching roots has been more on the defensive side. So what was it about the offense that initially caught your attention? Well, as our offense was said, I, I with our new coaches, you know, um, Jeff Grimes wanted to work with his whole coaching staff, and they tried to look at our talent on our team. 
and something that they could really develop and have a foundation set and be able to spread the ball out a little bit more. So I think he's utilizing all our talent on our team, and I've been pleased with how it's working. I mean, um, everything could be better in so many different ways in all three phases, but for the most part, our guys are playing good, disciplined football, and um, they're, they're not making a lot of mistakes. But uh, I think we're ready to, to, to have a good offensive explosion soon, and hopefully that will be this Saturday. Now, how about what you're seeing so far? Like, it can always be better, but when you're running these jet sweeps or fly sweeps, you've got the motion, you've got the shifts. It's a lot to ask of your quarterback. So what do you make of the way Tanner Mangum has handled all of this, and how impressed are you with him? Yeah, and I think he, you know, with Tanner, he doesn't get a lot of the credit for all the decisions that he has to make. We do a lot of things that we put on his shoulders, and we feel comfortable with the decisions that he makes. Um, whether to switch a play or call an audible or stick with it or to add a, a shift or motion to it. He, he does a lot of that um, and makes decisions, game-time decisions within the 40-second clock and been really pleased with how he manages the game. And he's been, you know, for the most part, taking care of the football. We lost the one game that he threw two picks in. And so uh, the three games that we haven't thrown interceptions, I think he realizes that it's important to take care of the football. And we're going to get some really good defenses. So I think it's a... Uh, we're, we're, we're developing as an offense, and I feel good about the foundations that's set in our offense right now. BYU head coach Kalani Sataki, my guest. Listen, I know you've got a major challenge ahead of you, but it's hard for me not to acknowledge or to ask you about what happened in Madison a couple of weeks back. Camp Randall is notoriously tough. That is a tough, tough environment. But you went in there and you handed the Badgers their first non-conference home loss in 15 years. Just how big a win was that for the program? It was a lot of fun. And... um Really wanted to see how much improvement we could make from a year. The year before, we got manhandled by them. And uh, being able to go up there, it was really good for us to see where we match up in the standard of physical football, which is what Wisconsin is. They're, they're, the, they're the top of it all. So wanted to see how much improvement we made, how, big, how much bigger and stronger we got. And we felt really comfortable going into the game with our preparation. And um, our players felt confident. So it was confirmed that we could hang with the big boys. And now we have to keep that rolling and then not just uh, be it a, a one-hit wonder. You know, we got to keep building on this and make it a strength for us in our program. But that was a great learning experience for our guys, and we had a lot of fun, and we uh, were fortunate to come out with a win. You know, in terms of physical football, I know what that meant to you and how proud you were because you gave game balls to the strength and conditioning staff. You know, Klein, I was in Wisconsin not long ago, and they walked me through that facility. I'd never been there before, and that is a part of their DNA. That's a really physical, physical program. So to me, for you to stand in the trenches the way you didn't trade with them, I think was really impressive. So now the focus is all number 11, Washington, and a trip to their place this weekend. When you look at Chris Peterson's team, what is the number one thing that concerns you? Well, they're super efficient, well-coached, and their guys love football. And so I've been really impressed with their team in all three phases. You always try to look for holes in different places, and there is none, which, which is a huge compliment to the coaching staff and Chris Peterson as a head coach. I've been really impressed with their culture, and we admire them, just like we admire um, Wisconsin going to their, their stadium and seeing their team and their program. Same thing goes for Washington. We admire them, and we really want to see how we match up against the best, and that's why we're excited about the schedule. We get to go to Washington and, and play an 11th-ranked team that's a, that has a coach that's well-known, and they're a national powerhouse. So, um, you know, we get to see how we measure up, and, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, I, I'm really impressed with their team, 
And, um, you know, we'll see if we can, we can hang with them. You know, he spoke really highly of your defense and the ability to keep plays in front of them. He feels like some of that comes from facing your offense in practice on a regular basis. So how much does seeing that offense help improve your defense? Oh, tremendously. We have a physical O-line that got bigger and stronger. Our D-line got bigger and stronger. Everybody on our team, we felt like we got stronger. So the physical part of the game, I thought we improved on. Right, and so it gave us a lot of confidence. But that's just that's just not the entire game. Is the physical part? I think for us, we're built on toughness. And so at BYU, it's hard. Everything's hard. It's it's tough. It's difficult. Academics is difficult here. The honor code is difficult, and um, and the football demands are difficult with the schedule being so front loaded, heavy, and everything. But that other people have seen that as a, as a weakness. For me, I see it as our strength, and that's what we're going to embrace. Tough things. We tell recruits when they come here that if you're interested in partying, this is the wrong school, and you got to go to class. If you can't do that, we can't coach you. With that on top of the demands we have in football, it's really difficult. But if you come here and you work four to five years, it will impact the rest of your life and in, in such a tremendous way, and I'm living proof of that. So we, we build it on that, and our guys believe in it, which will uh, allow them to, be, to behave the right way, and then we'll get the results we want. How in the world do you argue with any of that? Kalani Sataki joining us. Speaking of toughness, before I let you go, source tells me that you're a bit of a boxing fan, an MMA fan. i got to ask you about boxing. When did you first become a boxing fan, and who were some of your favorite fighters? I grew up loving boxing. I, I, my dad and I, my uncles, we all watched boxing. That's like our thing. You know, We had always had a punch bag in our, in our garage. Um, we play fight. We, real, we, we sparred with our cousins and that's kind of how we grew up, but I, I like the old, the old school, Mar, you know, Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray and those big time, you know, Iran Barkley, even Stonehands, Duran, you know, so I could name them. I, I love when Iron Mike showed up as a young teenager knocking people out. I'll watch amateur fighting. I'll watch all of that. I just can't do it as much as I do now, but now with the availability of technology, I can always watch it when I have a few minutes because watch some, uh, you know, some boxing and, I just love it. I just like that context. But I think it's the toughest guys, and boxers have the best footwork. I admire all the hard work that they put into the into the fight. And, and they can hate each other even before a fight, but there's that admiration and respect at the end. It's that gladiator respect, because if you're willing to step between the ropes and do what those guys do, there's always going to be that fundamental respect, or at least there should be. Kalani, you're so right. I mean, right now you can go to YouTube, but you and I came up uh, the same way. It used to be long before there was the Internet or YouTube, it was a thing, right? It was an event. When there was a big fight and they made that fight, that was a big deal, and literally time would stop for that, right? Oh, yeah, and you, you get butterflies for the fighters. You know, the, you see the entrance, and it's like everything came down to Friday night fights and You'd have these marquee big matchups, and man, I just loved it. It was so much fun to see them. And then you now you, you get to see how they train. You get to you get to see the background of it all. You get to see the trainers get some credit for what they do. Um, it's a team sport, and and I just think it's they're the toughest guys out there. And and such a such a lot for for me, it's really entertaining to watch guys get hit and even at the point of exhaustion, still be able to power through and, and finish to the end. All right. So finally, if you're an old school boxing guy, are you an MMA guy? I like both. Uh, I mean, I, I I appreciate the the um, groundwork and jujitsu work and everything, the submissions. But I love knockouts, man, and I love guys that that get hit and come back and just the old school slugfest, my favorite. So that's kind of I like boxing in that part where you just see a lot of tactical punching and and um, 
you know, you don't you can't go to the ground, so you got to stand up. So I, I, I'm partial to the stand up fighters in MMA, and I love boxing. I like striking too. Now, Kalani, you're an extremely respectful, humble person. Where do you come out on Conor McGregor? Respect his game. Um, don't not a big fan of how he goes about doing it, but he's a fighter. He works hard, and uh, you know I think he cares about the sport. But uh, I don't know. I just I, I like the humble guys, man. But I. I say that, but then I like what Muhammad Ali was all about. I think he was more playful than anything. Um, but I, I like—I didn't mind Joe Frazier knocking him out, too. <laughs> Kalani Sataki joining us. All right, so BYU going up against Washington, number 20 BYU, number 11 Washington. Great challenge, great matchup. Third season as Cougars head coach, and I want to reiterate a good friend of the program. Kalani, so good to visit with you. I know it's a major challenge once again this weekend, so good luck with that. And I hope we can get together and talk again soon. Appreciate it. We're going to have a lot of fun. Got that jungle karma now. Let's go to Matt in L.A. Matt, what's up? Good morning. Rome Slice, hey, excellent show as usual. I can't agree with old Tone Capone who called in earlier, man. Doc Roberts is legit, man. He's got the best managerial record for any Dodger manager through three seasons. So he's going to pull us through, man. Uh, we're going to go up to San Fran. Yeah, Frisco, I'm talking to you. We're going to go over there, make ourselves at home like most L.A. folks do, and we're just going to take care of business. We're sweeping the Giants, and then we're going to see what the future holds. Because, yeah, like you said, Buddy Black, man, hell of a manager. I respect the Rockies. But, hey, I'm riding with my Dodgers. I know we're going to take care of business, Romy. Now, I wanted to jump over and uh, hit the Raiders up. Raider Nation, we got to get rowdy this weekend. The Browns are coming in. We got to make Baker Mayfield know what goes on in Oakland. And that means we got to pull this damn thing with a win, Rome. That's all I got today. We're the battery chuckers in NoCal bowing down to us this year. Outro. All right, you got it. Nice job, Matt. He actually made it better. Brian and Wisco, quickly. Hey, Brian, how are you? Good. How you doing, guys? Good, good. How about you? Not bad, not bad. Just living a dream here. Brewers are back in the playoffs. Been a long time. Been seven years. Got a hell of a team. David Stearns went on. Got Granderson. Got uh, Gio Gonzalez. Scope's been kind of a slug, but uh, <laughs> pickups have been solid. We got a hell of a team, young team. Look how Cubbies are coming to get you. You can have Cole Hamels. You can have you, Darvish, coming to kick your ass. Rack him. Nice job, Brian. That's how you do it. Good night now! How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola Energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive. Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.